Hey folks, welcome to the AABIP podcast. This is Samir Alasarala from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm your host for this episode. Thank you all for joining us today. It'll be an interesting discussion that underscores a lot of the work we do, interventional pulmonology and thoracic oncology. Today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Scott O join us. Scott is an interventional pulmonologist at UCLA and a professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to uh, join you today. Scott, you got any relevant conflict of interest to disclose to us? Um, I, you know, I guess uh, I am a medical officer uh, part-time for uh, Intuitive, um, so I guess that ha- may have some uh, relevance here. So yeah, so maybe that. Okay. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker and myself and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. With the formalities done, let's get started. Interventional pulmonology would not exist without thoracic oncology. Like other facets of medicine, thoracic oncology is multidisciplinary in nature, with thoracic oncologists and IP being two very important key players. From a diagnostic standpoint, our goal is to get enough tissue for pathological diagnosis and ancillary testing in the safest way possible. How do we continue to get better at that? Let's find out. Scott, how does IP work with thoracic oncology at your shop? Yeah, it's very, very much a multidisciplinary um, effort at UCLA. We actually um, have our tumor board, and right after our tumor board every Friday, we have a multidisciplinary clinic that includes thoracic surgery, thoracic medical oncology, uh, thoracic radiation oncology, and interventional pulmonary. And um, we all see patients kind of round, round robin style. And, um, you know, on busy days, we can see seven uh, patients and on not so busy days, you know, maybe three or four patients, but uh, everyone tries to see every patient. And we discuss the case briefly uh, before seeing them to make sure we're all on the same page from our end. Sounds like a perfect one-stop shop that's very patient-centric. Have you folks been doing that for a while or is this something a bit more novel? We've been doing it now, I would say, maybe two or three years. It was very slow in the beginning. I have to say, from the perspective of um, the art, my from the physician's perspective, it's really inefficient, right? Um, mm-hmm. Spending all morning to see somewhere between four and seven patients in a full half-day clinic is a, not an efficient use of time for um for any one physician, I think that's a very slow clinic, but it's extremely valuable in um, learning from each other for sure. on the latest and greatest from, from each of the, the specialties involved. And um, we try to reserve uh, patients who are relatively new to the system or relatively complicated for this particular clinic, where it really takes everyone's input to come to a decision on uh, a consensus on what, what the management plan should be. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, collaboration is key with a lot of things that we do. Now, Scott, I want to get a little bit into the nitty gritty of some of the commonly faced procedural scenarios that center around diagnosis and staging. I want to pick your brain about those. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is uh, robotic assisted bronchoscopy. So let's say you have a suspicious lung lesion with adenopathy. What's the approach at your shop? Do you do the linear EBIS first, the peripheral first, case by case decision? What's going on through your mind? Yeah, it's definitely case by case, but I think things fall into certain buckets. I think the the case where um, we do the peripheral lesion first is if we think it's going to be a challenging case, 
And if the pre-procedural imaging really uh, gives you a very low pretest probability of mediastinal disease, uh, those are the situations where you end up finding a bunch of smaller lymph nodes, maybe three, four stations sometimes, and you end up spending a lot of time doing linear EBUS to be complete, mm -hmm. but your pretest probability is really, really low. In the meantime, you can get all the things that can happen as a case drags on with atelectasis and such. So in those cases, we go for the peripheral first. The other extreme where you have really suspicious lymphadenopathy and your pretest probability is really, really high. Sure. I think um, uh, I would do the linear EBUS first and then um, not ever do the uh, peripheral biopsy. If it's kind of in between, I tend to do the peripheral first um, because usually if there's going to be any challenge, it's going to be the peripheral case that's going to be more challenging than the, the linear EBUS. So it kind of those in-between cases, I tend to go after the nodule first. Yeah, it's a tough decision to make sometimes. You know, you're you're weighing cutting down procedure time and general anesthesia time for the patient uh, versus uh, potentially maximizing uh, the greatest yield that you can get from any given procedure. So uh, I, I've been in both boats in, in, in that particular scenario. So Scott, let's say you're doing a staging EBIS for a right-sided lung mass and you confirm cancer in station seven with rose. Are you assessing other N2 stations to determine bulkiness or just stopping there after you determine you got enough tissue? That's a great question. You know, it goes to how do you know it's bulky disease? And yeah. the usual response is I know it when I see it, right? <laughs> um, I think everyone agrees that multi-station N2 disease would be quote-unquote bulky disease. So I think um, once I know seven is positive, then I really try and uh, go after any other N2 lymph node stations that um, might uh, be positive as well. And also I make it a point, um, you know, we our, our team feels that having, let's say, two positive seven lymph nodes um, kind of starts to uh, stretch into that uh, that area or cross that line into quote unquote bulky disease, where um, depending on their medical comorbidities and medical operability, uh, may lean us one way or the other as far as uh, going with a neoadjuvant or definitive approach up front. So um, yeah, once I know one and two station is positive, you know I, I try to uh, be pretty thorough to to either completely exclude surgery as an option or be confident that it truly is a single station, non-bulky N2 disease um, and, and going with the neoadjuvant uh, approach first. Mm -hmm. Would you say that was a more recent change in practice or you've you been doing it that way for a while? We've been doing it that way for a while. You know, we try to look at the lymph node. A lot of times you see multiple lymph nodes at one station. So we look at the ultrasound characteristics and try to pick the ones that we think are the most suspicious. Okay. Uh, my, my next uh, thing that I want to talk to you about is, let's say you got a, a rose call on a parenchymal lesion that's positive for malignancy with uh, whichever needle you're using. Do you always follow the needle with some sort of forceps or 1.1 millimeter cryoprobe, or do you just stick with the needle and get as much tissue as you can? Yeah, my my approach has been needle first to create the pilot hole, usually two to three passes. Then I put the cryoprobe through. And you, we basically do, I do a cryobiopsy pretty much every time. Okay. Uh, and then get two to three passes with the cryoprobe and with the forceps. And then I articulate, um, you know, and, and, and target a different area of the lesion and then repeat. So needle, cryo, forceps, needle, cryo, forceps. 
um, until I feel like I've got enough tissue to get all the analysis that we want to get. So that's been kind of our protocol for um, really high risk lesions that are kind of right at the pleura. I feel like the cryoprobe is actually more precise and safer than the forceps because as you advance your forceps, you don't exactly know how much of the tissue is being pushed around mm -hmm. and where you're exactly closing the forceps. And I feel like with the cryoprobe, it tends to be a little bit more precise and um, in, in the location and area that you're biopsying. So if I'm, for example, biopsying a pleural-based lesion, oftentimes I won't use the forceps at all. I'll just use the needle and the cryo. Yeah, the, the advantages that I've personally seen with the cryoprobe is you don't have to you know, create enough space that your forceps necessarily needs to open. And I feel it's a significantly more flexible than the standard forceps that we would use for peripheral lesions. Um, now, Scott, let's say you're doing a staging EBIS for a lesion. Uh, pick whichever side you like. And this patient already had a PET CT uh, to begin with. And there's there's no adenopathy and there's no pedividity in any of the nodes. Are you uh, taking a look at the contralateral hilum? That's a good question. I mean, I think the bigger question there for me is, am I going to stage them at all? What's my pretest probability? Um, and if they're really, really small and peripheral and the PET CT is negative, you know, I think the biggest decision is, are you going to do a, a staging linear EBUS or not? Sure. Once you've made the decision that you're going to do it, I think you, you're you like, you should either be all in or, or out. And if you have your scope in, I think it would be, you know, I think it, we would do our, our usual systematic evaluation of every lymph node station starting from the N2s on the uh, N3s on the other side. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, Lots of research is published in thoracic oncology. In, in your mind, over the last two to three years, have there been any publications that aren't necessarily considered IP papers that have changed your practice with what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I, I would have to say it has to do with early stage disease, that, that, that big category, and specifically um, the surgical literature and the neoadjuvant literature. For the surgical literature, um, the CalGB140503 study with um, Altori, um, uh, showing that sublobar resection is non-inferior to uh, uh, anatomic lobectomy, both wedges and, and segmentectomies. Mm -hmm. That to me was a game changer in the sense that you can try to get away with lung sparing surgery and have equivalent outcomes. But the other eye-opening thing, I always thought that we were doing better uh, with surgical outcomes for lung cancer, but the um, recurrence rate in both arms was basically 30%, right? And and having 1A cancers that had, you know, very good staging, um, get, you know, surgical resections and have a recurrence rate of one in three, almost one in three was, you know, incredibly high to me. Um, so that, that kind of changed my approach to um, how important it is to um, uh, figure out how to treat these early stage lung cancers better, even stage 1A, two centimeters and smaller out in the periphery. This was also shown in the JCOG study, mm -hmm. um, looking at the Japanese, and they they didn't do wedges. They only did um, anatomic segmentectomy versus lobectomy, and their their disease-free survivals um, uh, was uh, a little uh, better uh, with recurrence rates of more in the 15 to 20% range. Uh, but um, uh, I think it's because it's a different disease. I think their cohort probably had a higher percentage of 
um, less aggressive adenocarcinomas. So that that had um, uh, impacts on on the disease recurrence. But still, having a recurrence rate for of that high for curative intent surgery for stage one A was was eye opening. So I think I think the that we have a lot of room for improvement for even definitive surgical resection of stage one A disease is is kind of um, um, sobering sobering data. Uh, with modern surgical techniques. The other other things for early stage disease are all the neoadjuvant trials. I mm-hmm. think starting with Checkmate 816, um, you know, they showing significant event-free survival with uh, a neoadjuvant approach. Um, it was Checkmate 816 was starting in stage 1B. And then that was followed by, um, you know, neoadjuvant and adjuvant studies, um, Aegean, Keynote 671, and uh, Neotorch, all with the same kind of uh, formula, and that's patients who are uh, eligible for surgery, stage two to three, and then they got um, neoadjuvant chemo plus immunotherapy, and then the immunotherapy was, you know, the immunotherapy du jour, dorvalumab, pembrolizumab, or toripalumab. Um, That was followed by another year, mostly, of, of immunotherapy alone, and all those studies came back positive for event-free survival. So what what how that changed my mind of, of what we do is I used to not care so much about N1 disease because they were gonna get if they're gonna get surgery, they're gonna get the N1 lymph nodes dissected out, uh, mm-hmm. assuming you have a, a good thoracic surgeon that dissects out the hilum well. And then if it's positive at the time of surgery, then they can go on and get their adjuvant therapy. No harm, no foul that you sure. didn't find that N1 lymph node preoperatively, pre-resection. But these clinical trials start enrolling patients at stage two. So if you find that N1 lymph node, they would be enrolled into these trials. So now it's even more important to try and find those N1 lymph nodes preoperatively. So I've become much more diligent and vigilant about trying to find N1 lymph nodes um, preoperatively to see if they're a candidate for the um, neoadjuvant treatment. And also the other two trials that I think that are, are, are kind of uh, uh, groups of trials that are really game-changing for me have been the targeted adjuvant therapies with the kind of uh, prototype being the Adura trials looking at osumeritinib for EGFR mutated, and then just the re- reported um, ALENA trial, which was very similar to Adura, which is the um, uh, crizotinib trial for alk mutated cancers, and basically what they're saying, all they're, what they're showing or beginning to show is that, you know, even for early stage disease, giving people targeted therapy for years after definitive local treatment um, has significant improvement in outcomes, and all these all these trials are being now pushed to the neoadjuvant trial. So they're trying to give these targeted therapies neoadjuvantly before resection to see how much of a benefit um, they, they they provide. So I would say it's those that group of, of studies that has really impacted um, my practice on a regular basis and, and specifically in a way where I'm much more aggressive and thorough about finding those N1 lymph nodes to see how much of a benefit or a candidate they may be for neoadjuvant therapy. Yeah, with the data coming out, definitely a changing landscape that uh, we we need to stay on top of. So 
I think we can all agree that IP is booming. Um, there's more technology out there, more and more fellowships every year. What do you think the next step is in IP fellowship training um, and an evolution that can make trainees more involved stakeholders within thoracic oncology as years go on into their practice? Yeah, this is an interesting thought. I think there's this growing field of a blank onc, like cardio onc, pomo onc, renal onc, whatever, you know, uh, subspecialty and all the cancer and cancer related complications of both the cancer itself, as well as uh, um, uh, complications of the therapy. And as, as interventional pulmonologists, we're really po positioned well to provide comprehensive care for cancer patients that have any manifestation of their cancer or complications of their cancer or their cancer treatment inside the chest, right? We're very uniquely positioned for that. Mm -hmm. And I think Part of it, like, for example, I think the thing that I run across so frequently now is, you know, some of the immunotherapy-related pneumonitis rates are pushing 20% in some of the clinical trials. So one in five patients uh, up to can develop some sort of immunotherapy pneumonitis, but some of those may be pseudoprogression, some of those may be pneumonitis, some of those may be lymphangitic carcinomatosis. And I think we're uniquely positioned to be able to try to make that call and that differentiation and figure out who needs to get a biopsy to help delineate which one of those things it may really be, because it has such a profound impact on prognosis and treatment. You stop the systemic therapy and give them steroids and, and you know, other immunomodulating agents, or do you um, uh, continue the treatment because it's it's um, or change systemic treatment because it's progression and it's lymphangitic carcinomatosis? Mm -hmm. That's such a profound impact on prognosis and treatment. Not having a middle person make that decision and having to make a second referral really, I think, kind of um, streamlines the the patient care pathway to getting a definitive answer and knowing what to do next. And I think we as interventional pulmonologists can ver are, are very well positioned to step in that role to provide comprehensive pulmonary care for all our cancer patients, including the complications of cancer therapy. And I think that's something that um, may be a kind of real, real uh, academic and clinical niche that will emerge more and more over time. Scott, I look forward to seeing you at the next conference with your badge, which you say, Dr. Scott O, onco-interventional pulmonologist. I look forward <laughs> to seeing that. Uh, Scott, this is fantastic. I, I always like to leave some time open for closing remarks. Anything you feel we left out that's important to discuss? Um, I think as we, as a, as a specialty, we are moving more and pushing more into the therapeutic world. And I think uh, what we need to be uh, thoughtful and very mindful of is what is the gold standard that we compare our bronchoscopic therapy approach to, right. right? If you think about surgery, let's say, then the recurrence rate was 30% for from the um, CalGB study. So, um, and then when we compare it to radiation oncology literature, we have to be really thoughtful about how they define disease recurrence because in that post-radiated field, it's hard sometimes to see uh, what's cancer and what's residual disease, et cetera, and, and so many medically inoperable patients were enrolled into those clinical trials that, you know, the, the overall survival rates are so low because they have so many medical comorbidities. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know what the real um, control rates are. 
Um, but I think it's really, really exciting times. Um, you know, the, uh, Dr. Chang from um, MD Anderson, the radiation oncologist, just uh, reported and published on their iSaber trial where they uh, combined immunotherapy with radiation and they had significant, that resulted in significantly improved outcomes um, combining the therapy. And that's where I think we as a field need to quickly move to um, figuring out if we're going to do bronchoscopic delivery of therapy, figuring out very quickly and moving towards com combining with whatever tools we have in our in our in our armamentarium to put into that kitchen sink and throw it at the cancer to um, you know have the best long-term durable outcome. So I think that's probably the, the the thing that is at forefront in my mind is we have to be really thoughtful how how we design and define outcomes in our therapeutic trials. Yeah, the horizon is definitely an exciting spot uh, with what we do here. Uh, Scott, I appreciate your time. This is wonderful having you on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and see you at the next conference. Sounds good.